Would you pray with me? Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Oh God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Okay, so how many royal wedding watchers are out there? I'm going to say there's twice that many because some of you are not willing to admit it in a public space. (laughs) I'm so grateful for technology because I set my alarm for 4 a.m. and I woke up and I realized I really was, it was too cold to get out of bed and um, I thought, hey, I can just lay in bed and stream it on my phone. My husband was gone, so I just laid in bed and watched it. It was great. I was so grateful for streaming technology at that moment. But I was 10 years old when Princess Diana and Prince Charles were married, and I fell in love with the royal family then, as so many of us did that were uh, that age in the early 1980s. And when my family and I visited London the following year, the only thing, only souvenir I wanted from London was to go to a hairdressing shop and get a Princess Diana cut in London. And it happened, and I proudly wore that cut throughout sixth grade. Um, And so all of these years, um, along with a few of you uh, others, uh, we have followed the royals and through the joys and traumas of their lives. And so it was so fun for me to see Prince Harry marry Meghan Markle yesterday. This week, someone shared with me an article that Meghan Markle, now the Duchess of Sussex, wrote a few years ago for Elle magazine, in which she described the moment in an elementary school where students in her class had to fill out a form, and they had to write what their ethnic background was. Were they black, white, Asian, Hispanic? And Meghan came to her teacher, and she said, I don't know which one to fill out because she was from a multiracial family. And her teacher said, well, just fill in the white box because that's what you look like. But she said she refused to fill it in because she didn't want to have to choose one parent over the other. When she got home that night, she told her dad what had happened and she could see his face turning colors in different shades of red. And he said to her, if that happens again, you draw your own box. You draw your own box. I think this is a perfect phrase for us to adopt for Pentecost. Because on Pentecost, we don't celebrate the birth only of the institutional church. We don't celebrate the start of a religion. We celebrate a God who draws a new box. The day of Pentecost that the kids were talking about is not the last or the first time that God draws a new box. In fact, God is always in the business of drawing new boxes. And God is always inviting us to join in that drawing. This story in Ezekiel is one of the most powerful and haunting stories in all of Scripture. God leads Ezekiel into this valley of dry bones, and Ezekiel walks around them. There were many lying in the valley, it says, and they were very dry. Ezekiel is writing while in exile in Babylon. 
He and his people have had to leave their homeland of Israel and are far away. In the struggle for possession of their homeland, there had been many battles. And as was the custom then, the conquering army would just leave the bodies in the battlefield to rot as the final insult. So we can imagine that as Ezekiel is looking at these bones, his fellow, he sees his fellow countrymen. He sees his friends and his family. Their bones are now dry months and years after battle. The battles have been lost, and now he and his fellow countrymen are displaced people. And so Ezekiel takes a long walk around these bones. The Hebrew text seems to indicate that he went around and around them, noting how dry they were, how hopeless it seemed. And I wonder, when you look at the world, where are the valleys of dry bones that you see? What places, what issues, what struggles seem to be places of hopeless death? Maybe it's in your own life. Maybe it's on the global scale. Maybe it's in our own country. Maybe it's in your family. But we all know what it's like to stand and look at that valley of dry bones and wonder if there is any hope left at all. So in that valley, God asks Ezekiel a question. Mortal, can these bones live? I love that he calls him mortal because in that moment, it's, it's like God is reminding Ezekiel that, that his perspective is limited to a certain number of years and to a, a certain uh, way that he is, can possibly see the world to a specific context mortal can these bones live how often do you find yourself saying it will never change it's beyond hope things have gone too far ezekiel would have been feeling all of this and he turns to god I imagine with tears in his eyes and heartbreak and fear, and he utters as much faith as he can when he responds, Oh God, oh Lord God, you know. Oh Lord God, you know. Ezekiel refuses to stay in despair, but he also doesn't choose blind positivity. In this moment... Ezekiel surrenders his perspective. He surrenders his hopelessness. He surrenders even his suffering. And he says to God, Oh God, you know. You know how much this hurts. You know how far we have gone without you. You know how hopeless it seems. You know how long it has been. You know. And then, God starts to draw a new box and invites Ezekiel to draw two. 
God says that Ezekiel should command the bones to live. And indeed, the sinews and the flesh and the skin begin to grow back onto these bones. It's a flash of resurrection, but it's not yet complete. For what is flesh and bone without breath? There's a hesitant pause as Ezekiel looks at these reconstructed figures. It's this weird, apocryphal image. And God says that Ezekiel should command the bones to live. And I looked, and there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. And then God said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, mortal, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. Prophesy to the breath. The word for breath, as I said earlier, is the same word for spirit in Hebrew, ruach, the breath of God that lives within us. And in this passage, the breath is animated. It can be spoken to. It can respond God doesn't act alone, but he acts with Ezekiel, asking Ezekiel to prophesy to the breath. Speak to the breath. Prophesy. Tell it what is possible. Tell it there is more than is visible. Tell it to draw a new box. Our call as followers of this God is to prophesy to the breath in our world to draw new boxes of what is possible. It was unimaginable to Ezekiel's people that they would ever return to their homeland, but they did. It was beyond imagining on that Pentecost day that people who spoke different languages would be able to understand each other, but they did. It was incredible to think that a marginalized Jewish prophet would spark a revolution of justice and love. But he did. And back to the royal wedding yesterday. Could the slaves who were carted away from their homeland in Africa ever imagine that one of their descendants would be standing in the Queen of England's chapel preaching at a royal wedding? Could they ever have imagined that the bishop of the Episcopal Church would be a black man who would invoke their songs and tell their story in that place to declare to the world an ethic of love? And yet there he was, Bishop Michael Curry, preaching to an estimated two billion people yesterday around the world. He was prophesying to the breath. And so God draws a new box. And so we, the church, empowered by the Spirit, are invited to keep drawing new boxes. Amen.